you and I are faced with an awfully disconcerting dilemma. We're trained virtually from birth that the successful people of this world are rich and powerful and famous. In a myriad of ways, in school and playground, that message is reinforced. You want to be successful, and to be successful, you got to have stuff, and you got to do stuff that impresses people. As we move up the educational ladder, we are reminded that the people who push and scrape and work their tails off are the people who become successful. In our jobs, we're encouraged by offers of, of salary increases and bonuses and incentives that, that getting ahead means selling the most or working the longest hours or being the most famous person. And that's success. And even in the church, we follow people, we, we set our course with people, we admire people who are wealthy and famous and Powerful, we go to their conferences, we read their books, we connect to their podcasts, we mimic their thoughts and actions because we see them as successful people. And we have a tendency to measure success by what people accomplish and by how famous they are. Now, all of that would be fine if it weren't for the gospel. Wouldn't have any problem with thinking like that if it weren't for Jesus. Because despite what our culture tells us, and despite how our educational system rewards us, and despite how people progress in job market, and despite honestly how the church sometimes confuses us, Jesus is pretty clear that the kingdom of God is not about those things. That the kingdom of God doesn't operate that way. And our gospel reading this morning is one poignant example that we would do well to ponder. Turn with me in the gospel of Mark chapter 8. We're going to begin the reading at verse 31. Mark chapter 8, verse 31. Jesus then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. And he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, If anyone would come after me, must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it? For a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul. Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory 
with the holy angels. This is the word of the Lord. Mark writes to a suffering church. He writes to a church in which a follower of Jesus Christ might well be faced on a regular basis with the choice, choose Jesus or die. Choose Jesus or die. You and I rarely face that kind of choice. We're rarely persecuted for our faith, much less face death for it. But that doesn't mean that we don't live with subtle pressure about following Jesus in this world. We live in a, subtle, in, a, in a world of subtle pressure about what it means to succeed, about what it means to be normal, about what it means to be fulfilled. And Jesus says that our dilemma has something to do with the value that we place on the temporal and the eternal. It's about the way our world assigns value to what's important and successful and what's not. And it is continually before us. Will Willeman tells a teaching in Sunday school class where they're talking about the temptations of Jesus in the wilderness. And after he had talked about the meaning of all the temptations and they studied it, he asked the class, how are we tempted today? And the young salesman was the first to speak. And he said, I'll, I'll tell you, temptation is when your boss calls you in, as he did me on Friday, and says, look, we're going to give you a bigger sales territory. We believe you're going places, young man. He said, I said to my boss, but I don't want a bigger sales territory. I'm already away from my wife and, and, and daughter four nights a week as it is. It wouldn't be fair to them. And his boss said, look, we're only doing this for your wife and daughter. Don't you want to be a good father? It takes money to support a family these days. Surely uh, you're, you're a little girl. She doesn't take much money now, but think of the future. I'm only asking you to do this for them. And the salesman said to the class, that's temptation. And in a variety of ways, that kind of temptation is before us. And it's a strong temptation because it connects, it's more connected to our natural inclination than it is to the way the kingdom of God operates. Just before this incident, Jesus has asked the disciples who they think he is. And, and Peter eventually says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus doesn't deny it. He says, keep it under your hat for a little while, but he doesn't deny it. And following that, Jesus says in verse 31, or Mark says that he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, teachers of the law, that he must be killed and rise again in three days. He says he spoke plainly about this. He was very upfront and frank with them about what was going to happen in his life. And Peter, who had just had one success, thought he'd try it again. And you can almost picture Peter putting his arm around Jesus and leading him aside and saying, Look, don't talk like that. Don't talk about death and rejection and suffering. That, that's not how you get ahead in this world. Don't do that. And Jesus turns and looks at his disciples and they're taking the whole thing in. And so he turns to Peter and says, Get behind me, Satan. Because you don't have in mind the things of God, but the things of earth. You are thinking about things purely from a human perspective. 
Peter's logic is on is the logic of the human mind, because that's how we tend to think. And isn't it interesting how how God or how uh, Satan will use other people, good people, people who care about us, people in relationship with us to try to talk us out of living for eternity in subtle ways. As Peter tries to do with Jesus. It's exactly what Ernie encountered with this woman in the chiropractor's office. You don't want to do that, do you? That's dangerous, isn't it? Have you really thought about that? And people will say to us, as they worry and concern, uh, are concerned about us, you aren't moving up the ladder. You aren't making progress. You're not increasing your net worth. You aren't getting ahead. You're not, you're not becoming famous. But even the followers of God far too often think about things from our human perspective rather than God's. After Jesus rebukes Peter, he calls together now all the people with his disciples and says, let me just let me just make this crystal clear. If you want to be one of my disciples, then you're going to have to deny yourself and take up your cross and walk the path that I walk. And he says, if you give up your life for my sake and the sake of the good news, you will save it. But if you hang on to your life, if you grab for the things of this world, if that's your priority, you'll lose your life. And then he adds, and and what good is it anyway if you gain the whole world and lose your soul? You see, this is not just a call to be different or to think differently. It's a call to think and decide like Jesus. It's a call to the priorities of Jesus and to operate with the motivation of Jesus. And I want to remind each of us this morning, myself included, that despite what everybody else tells us, this is a radical diversion from what is natural to us. This is a radical diversion from how most people think about success. And the temptation of the enemy is to cause us to believe that we can follow Jesus, that we can be named a disciple of Jesus without thinking and living and operating with the mind of Jesus. And it's a lie. It's a lie that far too many of us have believed and bought into and practiced for so long, it's hard to distinguish. And so Jesus says, is that really worth it? I want you to think about this. Is there an area of your life where you're making that's more important to you than I am? Is there a point of compromise in your thinking that reveals something that something in this world is more important to you than your relationship with me? No, it's so easy for us to to not be satisfied. And so we're always wanting more in this world. And, and we do that with, with possessions. You know, we, we struggle with being materialistic and wanting things. And there is a difference between living for money and wealth and living with money and wealth. And maybe the, maybe the thing that helps us to distinguish which we are living is our spirit of generosity. Our spirit of sacrifice. What are we doing with what we have? Do we work in order to get stuff? Do we work to get stuff in order to be happy? 
or so that we can give it away? Do we accumulate to satisfy our own needs or to help others in need? Do we think, how much can I sacrifice and, and still live? Or how, how little can I sacrifice and still keep one toe in the kingdom of God? How much can I give or how much can I keep? You know, someone has said that in the economy of God's kingdom, the person who has Jesus and everything in this world has nothing more than the person who has Jesus and nothing in this world. And there is nothing inherently evil about wealth and possessions. The problem comes, as Paul says, when we begin to love them. When that's where our priority is. When we are driven to get more and more and more to keep. And Jesus wants us to understand that it's not about dollars and cents. That the economy of God's kingdom isn't what we're used to. In fact, it's radically different. It's so different that honestly, it's often offensive to us. It's offensive to the way we tend to naturally think in this world. About who's successful and who isn't. But our struggle isn't just with money and wealth and possessions. It's also with fame and recognition and acknowledgement. And there's nothing wrong with fame and recognition unless that's what drives our decisions and our thoughts and our concerns. And it's hard because we're continually being bombarded with messages about this is what gives you value and this is what gives you worth. And it usually has something to do with fame and recognition. There's a wonderfully revealing cartoon strip from Bill Watterson's Calvin and Hobbes. In the preceding days, Calvin has, has entered his poster in a contest at school. And as has been as is his normal practice, if you, read, if you read that comic strip, he waits to the very last minute to do it. Sort of throws something together and it's pretty bad. But he thinks he's going to win. He thinks it's great. And he can't wait to, to get his prize, but he doesn't win. And he comes home from school that day and he's very upset and he says, Dad, my poster didn't win the contest. I think the judges run the take and the whole thing was rigged. So I want you to call the school board, declare it a fraud and make them take that, that prize away from Susie and give it to me. And his father says, Calvin, losing is a part of life. You should learn to be a good sport about it. Keep things in perspective. After all, winning isn't everything. Calvin stares at him and says, is that really what they believe on the planet you're from? (laughs) And his father shakes his head and says, you've been watching those athletic shoe ads on television again, haven't you? (laughs) The radical concept of the gospel is that you can be famous and live for Jesus. But you cannot live for fame and recognition and live for Jesus. You might become famous and recognized, but in the kingdom of God, it can't drive you. And if you want to know what's driving you, think about how you respond when a little bit of fame and recognition comes to you. I suspect that that Mother Teresa is a name that's recognized in the majority of households in this country and many places of the world. 
She won Nobel Peace Prize. She had all kinds of awards and accolades given to her. She became famous. But you never get the feeling, got the feeling that that's what her life was about. Her life was about sharing Christ with lepers on the streets of Calcutta. And I often wondered how she, how difficult it must have been for her to maintain that perspective after all the things that were said about her and to her and given to her. And then I read that that her practice when she returned from one of these trips where, where, where people gave her awards and they, and they said all kinds of amazing things about her and they praised her and all that she'd done and who she was. When she came back from one of those trips, she went down to the Sisters of Mercy and, and she went back to, the, to, to their place of ministry and she asked which of the people they were serving was in the worst condition. And they took her to that person and then she spent the rest of her time caring for that person until that person died. And she said it helped her to keep her focus on why she was there and why she was doing what she was doing. It helped her remember that God had called her to care for lepers. I think I would have said, you know, look, the ministry's growing. Uh, There's a lot of good things happening here. We need to think about fundraising, organization. I don't really have time to take care of lepers anymore. In fact, I don't really like doing that anymore. I kind of like doing this other stuff. It's a lot more fun. And how subtly things change. There's nothing wrong with being famous. Just as there's nothing wrong with being wealthy, it just has to be handled right. Jesus is probably the most famous person in Israel in that day. People are flocking to him. They're swarming to him. The religious leaders are irritated because everybody loves Jesus. You can almost see them sitting around at the table saying, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. That's all everybody wants to talk about. Jesus this and Jesus that. We've got to do something about this. This is crazy. But it's not fame that drives Jesus. And, and I know our argument, it's not, it's not a bad argument. We don't want to be lazy. We don't want to be so content that we're complacent. And those are legitimate concerns, but we have to be so careful because they can easily move us into the mindset of this world. And the issue isn't being wealthy or poor, but what drives us to earn what we earn and what do we do with it once we get it? And the issue isn't being famous or anonymous, but it's what drives us to do what we do and and how do we deal with it when we do it. And the other question that we have to ask ourselves is as we walk the paths of of this world and and we move forward in life and, and we're making progress, would Jesus be pleased to walk with us in the decisions we make? And how we earn our money and move up the ladder. Or would he be embarrassed to be associated with us? You can tell if fame and wealth and success are gifts from God or something that's driving us. If when we take that second job, it's because it's not because we need it to exist and to live, but it's because we want more. If we cut corners in our work so that we can make a little more profit. If we're filling out our income taxes and we 
take some deductions that aren't really ours and ignore some income that we really should put in because we just want a little bit more. This is why people who have great amounts of wealth create shell companies and embezzle the pension funds from the employees. There's something about the fact that we want to get that house and and to own that car and to possess those toys that we'll do anything to get them. And you don't have to have a lot of wealth or seek great great amounts of fame to fall into that trap. And so we ask ourselves, does what I have and what I accomplish make me think more or less about Jesus? And if that's not difficult enough, the most sobering part of all of this is that Jesus says that letting the stuff of this world drive us is not only contrary to the kingdom of God, but it's eternally dangerous. When you get to the end of this section in verse 38, Jesus says to the crowd, if you are ashamed of me and my words in this world, then I will be ashamed of you. When we get to the next world. And Jesus realizes that if we're willing to to trade our souls for something temporal of this earth. Jesus really isn't all that important to us, is he? Jesus continually gives us choices. You can give up yourself now and gain joy forever. Or you can grab stuff now. And at some point... Lose it all anyway. And eternity. Maybe it wouldn't be a bad idea for us sometimes just to spend some time periodically up at the cemetery. Just walking around and remembering. And thinking. And pondering. You know, it seems difficult to believe, but. People are willing to give up their souls for stuff of the earth. You know, it's hard for us to comprehend in our sane moments. It's like the the guy who was on the ship coming back from uh, searching for gold in California. And he and a bunch of the guys had been very successful. And they were on this ship and they rammed something and it put a hole in it and they began to sink. And lifeboats ran out and everybody realized they were going to have to swim for it. And so the guys began to take off their belts of gold and throw them up on the deck and jump in the water. Except for one guy who was, just couldn't take it. I can't believe these guys are throwing this away. And he grabbed all those belts and began to strap them around himself. And then he jumped in the water. You know, nobody congratulated him on his great wealth. You know, we scratch our heads and say, how can we fall into that trap? But we do. And most of us probably aren't going to be that famous or that wealthy or that connected to this world. But let's assume for a moment that you are. Let's assume that you become the richest person in the world or the most famous person in the world, the most successful person in the world. Let's say that by putting the world first, you get it all. Everything you've ever dreamed. Jesus reminds us, That even if you get it all, the price is too high. The price is too high. Because everything you've accumulated now is going to disappear. 
And eternity will look different than you had hoped. Jesus isn't just asking us to give up our lives. He's not asking us to give up our lives for a good cause or for a good person. He's not asking us to give up our lives, our desires, our yearnings for positive change in the world. He's calling us to give up our lives for him and for the gospel. And I'm not sure we're all really convinced at how strong the temptation is for us every day to live more for what is temporal than what is eternal. I think we believe that to some degree we can live thinking a lot about the temporal and giving ourselves to the temporal and letting it even drive us and still stay a little bit in the kingdom. And Jesus says that if you think you can do that, you're deluded. Eventually, you have to choose. Last week, I, my eye caught a headline on one of the internet news services that grabbed me. There's a little story that took place in Crossville, Tennessee. A woman called... Uh, called 911 because she saw two people putting a young boy in the trunk of their car and close it and drive off. She gave the police the the license number and the make and model of the car, and it wasn't long before they stopped them. Police were very concerned about what they were going to find when they opened the trunk, but when they popped it up, this teenage boy hopped out. And the story began to unfold. These people had a large television that they needed to transport, And it wouldn't fit in the trunk. So they put the TV in the back seat and they put the kid in the trunk. You just have to wonder, don't you? What's interesting is that it was one of their relatives that turned them in and it was the boy's sister that put him in the trunk. Now there might be some moments when you have wanted to stuff your sibling in a trunk. But I don't think we do that. And we laugh about that because it's so ludicrous. And I read that article and all of a sudden I thought, is it possible that I might be putting some eternal things, stuffing them in the trunk so that I can make room for temporal stuff in my backseat? Is it possible that We can get so enamored with things and stuff and temporal ideas and and possessions and recognition that we're willing to stuff some eternal stuff in the trunk. That's what the song is asking us. What are you living for today? What are you living for today? Let's pray. We're going to take just a moment to, uh, to listen as the Holy Spirit speaks to us and to respond.
Father, forgive us. Forgive us for the times when we have been more concerned with the temporal than the eternal. Give us new eyes and ears and hearts. Refocus our attention today. And help us. Help us. Through the grace of Christ Jesus. Amen.